Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Doing It for Bartolo. My name is June Lee. Uh, on the show this week, we have Richard Deitch of Sports Illustrated. Richard is the sports media critic uh, over at SI, and he's kind of the ombudsman of sorts uh, for sports media in general, especially on Twitter. Uh, and if you if you listen to the show, I, I would assume that you're already following Richard on Twitter. And if you're not already, he's at Richard Deitch. Uh, over there, he's a really fun follow. He tweets out a bunch of great articles uh, beyond just uh, being a great sports media critic. He, he's kind of a, a great curator of interesting content just all around the internet. So he's definitely worth a follow if, if you're not following him on Twitter already. Uh, we talked about a, a variety of things this week, uh, and this this show is you know coming off the Buster Only episode and the Tom Verducci episode. This is a kind of a change of pace. Uh, you know, no, not not very much baseball this week, but. Uh, we talked about kind of the, the state of the sports media industry in, in general, how Richard uh, got to Sports Illustrated in the first place in kind of his early years there and what he learned uh, from from being around so many great reporters as uh, someone who, when he got his job at Sports Illustrated, was really young. So he, he really took in a lot of things from many of the veteran reporters over there, and he really expounded on... Uh, just kind of the lessons he took away, uh, and then you know he's a he's also a journalism teacher at the Columbia University uh, Graduate School of Journalism. So he has also a unique perspective, having you know taught journalism uh, at a very very high level as well. Uh, so he's got a very unique perspective on kind of the state of the sports media industry as a whole. And we touched on a variety of topics, uh, and I think you guys are going to enjoy the the conversation that I had with him. The episode's a little bit shorter than the episodes uh, in, over the last couple of weeks, uh, but regardless, I know you guys uh, are going to enjoy this as well. Richard was really a great guest to have onto the show. And if this is your first time listening to the show, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcasting consuming platform you listen to this. And if you do enjoy the show, please leave us a nice rating on iTunes. It really does help out uh, with getting the word out about the show as well. And and share it with a friend if you enjoy the episode as well. Uh, So without further ado, this is Richard Deitch of Sports Illustrated. Uh, on the show today, we have Richard Deitch of Sports Illustrated. Richard, thanks for taking the time to do this. Thanks for the invite. Um, so, where where did you grow up? Uh, how did you how did you kind of get into sports and, and sports journalism? Uh, man, there's really nothing worse than somebody going through their resume. That said, for you, June, <laughs> I will uh, go against my usual uh, thought process. I appreciate and, that and give you some of it. Um, well, I grew up uh, in a town called. Um, uh, Wontaw, which is in uh, Long Island, and I got into sports. Basically, my mother um, worked; parents divorced when I was very, very young, and so we had three newspapers delivered to our house every day: New York Times, um, Newsday, which is a Long Island newspaper, and the Daily News. And so, you know, I can remember pretty much as early as nine or ten or whatever. Um, just whenever I came home, if I wasn't playing outside, I just like was fascinated by like the sports section of the paper. So I started reading that from what I remember pretty early. And we always had newspapers and magazines around our house. My mom got me a subscription to Sports Illustrated when I was really, really young. And so I just like I was like as fascinated by like how people put together like their stories as I was watching the sports on TV. And I was obviously a huge sports fan. And, I watched every sport, but like I, I was really just like fascinated by like how are these people writing these stories, and how does it appear in like my newspaper the next day? 
So that's kind of where my love of both journalism and sports came from. Was I would watch, um, I would you know, I would watch uh, sports at night, whether it be the Mets or the Yankees or the Islanders or the Rangers, and then we just had a lot of news around our around our house from these newspapers to magazines. My mom, I think that way back then, subscribed to Reader's Digest and the New Yorker. So there was just always reading around uh, around my house growing up. So that's sort of uh, that's where it fostered. I, I uh, worked for my local town newspaper when I was 16. So I started pretty young there. I worked for my school newspaper as a high school student. And then um, when I went to undergrad at the University of Buffalo, I um, started at their newspaper, college newspaper, uh, my first uh, semester freshman year. And I would say I pretty much, you know, stayed there. Uh, as I worked at the newspaper as much as I sort of attended classes over the next four years. It's not a very uncommon story for people who go into journalism. Well, yeah, and, uh, I can, I can and very much relate I, that, to that right now. <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty much where I, where I, where I really started writing every day and, um, and started uh, at least to find a little bit of a voice was at the University of Buffalo. Was sports journalism uh, and covering sports in general always the focus for you? Yeah, I mean, um, while I was interested in other subjects, I think I always knew I was going to gravitate to sports. I was just, you know, I was just a really huge sports fan growing up and uh, and really just uh, not even just interested in my own local teams, but just sort of interested in things nationally. Uh, and again, I was, you know, uh, I was someone who just, you know, maybe there's a reason I cover media. I just, I watched a lot of TV as a kid. I'm sure part of that was being a latchkey kid. And I just like was fascinated by how sports was covered. I loved the Olympics and just the idea of like how a network could, could put all these interesting things on for 16 straight days. So I think I always knew I was going to go into sports and at Buffalo, um, you know, I, while I wrote other things other than sports, uh, I did cover teams there. I uh, very early on got an internship to cover the Sabres for a year. Um, and so that gave me at like 19, like some insight into how the professionals did it. And I was in the locker rooms. And so that was really good. I learned from Buffalo news people. So I think pretty early on, um, you know, uh, certainly at, as an undergrad, I, I thought I'd was going to head to sports. I stayed in Buffalo for a couple of years after I graduated to cover the Bills and the Sabres. I did that for a gigantic weekly paper up there. Um, I worked for a high school magazine that covered uh, all sorts of high school sports in Buffalo and Rochester. I worked for a little bit of a time for a Bills fan publication, um, which did which covered the Bills on a daily basis and did a lot of uh, um, yeah some journalism. I'm probably like looking back on it as a little bit too of a PR product now, but it was all good because. Um, you know, uh, being on being 21, 22, 23, I had a lot of these jobs where I just really could do whatever I wanted. I, I also covered like music and pop culture in Buffalo, so that was pretty cool. I'd go out on the weekends and write about what I saw. I got very lucky. I co-hosted a radio show for two years in Buffalo on a 50,000 watt station. I kind of won a tryout, so I got some radio experience there. So Buffalo really helped my whole foundation and in sports and the bills were very very good then so that was very cool so i got to see high level games the sabers were pretty good too and then after buffalo i went to i came back to new york and went to grad school at columbia and then after columbia i landed at sports illustrated and i've been here uh since uh, 98 so i have a very untraditional career path in that i've had very very few jobs and i haven't really uh, floated around to like 20 different cities for the most part it's been uh 
Buffalo, New York, and I did take a year off in 2008 to be a Night Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan, where um, they basically paid me to go there for the year and study. So, um, so I have a pretty untraditional career arc compared to a lot of other people in the profession who's, who probably have had you know, 5, 10, 15 jobs. Sure. Uh, you said you started to find your voice in college. When was the moment that you started to realize what, what, how you kind of wanted to present yourself as a journalist? I think the, I probably found my voice as a as a human interest writer far more than as a sports writer at the at the University of Buffalo. I, I uh, my senior year they gave me a column basically to write whatever I wanted. So I could write from um, you know like how AIDS was affecting college students to uh, you know here's this like uh, cool lake on the campus and you know it's a great place to hang out and read, you know, to, oh, all right, you know, here's our football team, and they're not very good, and here's why. So I basically had all sorts of freedom to write whatever I wanted to write, and, you know, some of it was, you know, quite frankly, if you look back at it now, like, should be burned and incinerated, it was so bad. <laughs> but um, but, but it, I got a chance to sort of stretch myself and to do different things, and I think that's probably where my writing voice uh, really started. Um, and then... I, 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 as I look back in hindsight, I was pretty fortunate. I didn't work for the Buffalo News, but I worked for this other uh, place in town that just allowed me to write so much. So I was writing like 10, 12 articles a week for this big weekly. And that really gave me a chance to just do a lot of different things and try a lot of different things in writing. So like, you know, one piece might be like I'd write, I spent 24 hours with a local DJ who was, uh, like uh, DJing in a club and just write about him. And then the next day I might do like, you know, a profile on a saber. So they just like, it gave me a lot of opportunities to just like sort of stretch out and do different things. And I think that's where I got my voice. If I had to do it again, one hindsight thing, I wish I would have worked for uh, the city side section of some newspaper and learned how to do like cops and courts and stuff like that. I think that would be, would have been really, really valuable today but um mm -hmm. but buffalo was an amazing place for me because it just it really gave me an opportunity to like write uh far more than i ever would have written had i went somewhere else sure something something that i wanted to ask you and i think you'll have um some particular insight into this because you cover sports media for a living is a lot of people uh, my age you know going into college or in college are torn between whether or not they should be majoring in sports journalism as a uh, in, 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 during college or, or just be working for the school newspaper and trying to find some sort of liberal arts, more uh, more of a rounded education. Uh, what is kind of your opinion on that, someone who, who attended Columbia graduate, uh, the graduate school for journalism? Yeah, I mean, I, one, I would say I, I, I'm not egotistical enough to tell anybody what they should do. Um, so I'll just sort of, I'll, I'll frame it under this. This is sort of my opinion, having both um, gone to a graduate school of journalism and now teaching at a graduate school of journalism. I would opt not to major in sports journalism as an undergraduate if I was giving, uh, if someone really asked for me for honest advice, because I think you can major in it without majoring in it, meaning that if you really want to uh, pursue sports journalism, there'll be outlets on your campus to, to practice that craft, whether it's the school newspaper, the school's uh, you know newspaper website, some student magazine, or you just create your own blog and go out and do stuff. To me, that's going to be as much experience as you can get in addition to whatever classes you'll take. And I think you'll become a better writer and a better journalist and a better thinker by going, by majoring and taking classes elsewhere, whether that's English classes or even communication classes or political science classes. To me, I think that would make you a more well-rounded 
journalist and more, or, or at least potential journalist, a more well-rounded thinker than micro-focusing so hard on sports journalism. Because I think you can find these sports journalism experiences on your own. That said, the benefit of obviously being in a sports journalism major, you'd make contacts with professors who would probably know people for jobs. You'd make contacts with your fellow classmates who will probably go on to do things in your profession. So there's benefits there in terms of networking. But I would, um, you know, I know so many people, especially who I work with at SI, who went to non-traditional journalism colleges. You know, while there's a lot of people here from Northwestern and Missouri, et cetera, you know, there's tons of people from these other schools that have, you know, that are not known for their quote-unquote journalism programs. So you can end up anywhere from anywhere. Uh, that would be always the one thing I would let all students know is that there is no tradition, there is no singular path that one should take. There's most, many, many paths to get to the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, so you started at Sports Illustrated out of grad school. How did that come about? Uh, I um, got an internship at SI for Kids right out of Columbia, and that was a summer internship. And I, uh, um, you know, I basically spent what turned out to be like 20 hours a day at that internship because once I uh, got into Time Inc., I wanted to stay. I remember my very famous professor named Judith Christ, one of the most famous critics uh, in America at one time for movies, said she called Time Inc. the cafeteria of life, and you want to get in there at any cost. So I turned down a um, a much higher paid internship at the Louisville Carter Journal and News to take this internship at SI for Kids. And SI for Kids was not where I wanted to end up, per se, because it was I didn't think I'd really want to write for a kids magazine. Sure. But it was a way to get into SI. And, um, uh, you know, I really worked hard, and I think the editors there noticed that. So they ended up hiring me after my three months as an intern. I then worked for SI for Kids for six months as a reporter and fact checker. And Sports Illustrated... Uh, because I got to know people at SI for Kids who had used to work at Sports Illustrated, and, and as their career got older, they came down and were editors at SI for Kids, made the right connections there, and six months after being hired full-time at SI for Kids, SI offered me a, a full-time job, which was my dream place. That was the place as a kid I always wanted to work, so um, they would, at that time, seemingly was inconceivable that it was happening, and so that was it. I got very, very lucky. I, the, getting into SI for Kids was the game changer because that got me in this building. It's not the same building anymore, so I use building sure. metaphorically. Um, and that was it. I got to network with the right people and, the, and got to interview with the right people and then get hired. And then once I got to SI in 1998, I told myself, you know, I would be willing to do anything. They needed me to stick around. And so, like most other young people here, I fact-checked. Uh, my first couple of years, I went out and served as a reporter. We don't do this as much anymore, but I was the tennis reporter. So I would go out with people like Scott Price and Rick Riley and Gary Smith and just report for them and then send these guys back 10, 20 page reporting notes files. And if they used like, you know, a paragraph of my reporting in their larger piece, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of the training ground as you were a fact checker and then you, uh, you know, usually you get sort of assigned to a sport and be a reporter and you'd work with the senior level uh, guys. So that was my first couple of years at SI. I was doing that. And obviously I got to write a little bit. It was uh, The web was nowhere near as big when I started. So to get into the magazine was like an incredible achievement. My first piece was a catching up with, with a hockey player named uh, Howie Young, who since has died. He played for the Red Wings and drank himself out of the league, but had a great second act where he was a bus driver for a Navajo reservation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
So that's sort of my, that was my start at SI. And then since then, obviously, over the last, whatever it's been, 17 years, I've worked for every part of the brand, from swimsuit to the commemorative division to dot-com to uh, the main magazine to our commemoratives to uh, our podcast division now. So, you know, once you've been here as long as I have, you you pretty much let people know you're willing to do anything to stay. So when you are kind of uh, going through the works and, and as a young reporter, um, what what were some of the biggest takeaways you took from, from you know, just being a fact checker, doing all that nitty-gritty work, and also doing a bunch of reporting for some of the, the veterans over there? I think the biggest takeaways for me were just how much these guys reported. Um, you know, Scott Price, Tim Layden, Riley, Gary Smith, um, I'm trying to think of the people who, who I, I mean, I really, really work with Scott, Price, John Wertheim. Um, I'm trying to think, is there any other senior writers at that time who I really, really worked a lot with? Peter King a little bit. But the, the takeaway for all those guys was just how much they would report on a singular story. I mean, the, the they you know, it's the really age-old, like, they, they, they were reporting, like, they were, it's like, you know, you, you, you interview 20 sources and you end up using three, whatever that percentage is. And that's what these guys sort of, that's what I learned from them is they really never stopped mm-hmm. reporting. They're obviously all incredibly gifted writers and you can't really teach that. I mean, no one, you can't sort of, Scott Price is like, uh, and he's SL Price is his byline. It's just, he's a naturally phenomenal writer. You know, you can't really become him, uh, but you can, you can certainly become as good a reporter as him. And I think that was the real takeaway uh, for even the most famous guys, like Riley. I just I was really impressed by how hard they reported. Um, I was impressed by the care of of, of how people uh, approached and used words, especially in house. The editors were really really careful about language. We had the best copy editors in the world who really cared about words. So I think in my early years, what I just took was like such an appreciation and respect for word choices. And um, the other thing, too, I took was it just was a very intimidating place to work. And you had to like – this is where the web has actually been very great for, I think, for me and for the younger people here now, is that it was really intimidating at first to work at Sports Illustrated because you basically would go home and say, I'm ne- I can never be as good as these guys. I have no chance to be as good as – Gary Smith. I have no chance to be as good as Tim Layden. Um, and I think what I learned as I got older was you just have to sort of be the best you. You have to find what your strength is and do you the best you can do. The web turned out to be a great thing here because like the barriers for entry got lower and every, you know, you didn't have to just be a 3000 word long form writer. You can, you could add value to the brand in different ways. And so that's, um, that's been great for me because uh, I've really tried to sort of take media and, you know, do interesting things on it and kind of make it my own. And when I first started SI in the early uh, late 90s and early 2000s, I could, ne- I could not have written my media column today in the magazine. They just they would never have given me that kind of space. It just would never have happened. So so the world in that sense has changed, uh, I think, for the better. And that we, we have a lot more younger people here who now get better opportunities than when I first started, um, because when I first started, it was it was tough to get into the magazine. It was it was a very competitive environment. I think it made you better, but it, it was not easy. It was it was not easy at all to one get a job here and two to get in the magazine. 
So how have you seen the magazine change since the advent and the explosion of the Internet? Well, the world has just changed, and that's that's where the magazine has changed. Obviously, there's just, you know, um, there's so many more sources where you can get scores and highlights and news. And, you know, Sports Illustrated, certainly in the 80s, was, you know, the dominant sports brand, I, I would say, in this country. Uh, maybe, let's say, even 70s, if you want to sort of say ESPN is the demarcation in 79 or whatever. So... Sports Illustrated has just had the change in that it's become much more feature oriented. Um, you know, we've had much more of uh, ad challenges in the, in 2015, 2016, and the 2000s because people advertisers have pulled away from magazines and put money obviously into digital and television and other places. I think the um, I think the quality of the writing on the whole is generally still very very good. I'm not one who's so nostalgic. And always saying, like, oh, the magazine in 1975 was better than 2016. It's not the case. Sometimes it was. Sometimes it's not. But the biggest change is just that the magazine industry as a whole is far less um, – it's just it's, – its impact is smaller because the, the digital revolution changed everything. And people like you, your age, you – while I grew up every day running to my mailbox or I should say every week running to my mailbox to get Sports Illustrated, that's not just per se a part of – your life and your um, your friend's life. They're, they, you know, you get your news every day on your mobile phone or uh, or your iPad or if you're streaming news through Apple TV. It's just your experiences and how you consume news are different. I think people love news and information as much as ever, but what's changed is just that the magazine, especially for young men, is just it's a it's not as part of their lives on a day to day basis as it was when I was growing up. What was when when you were first published in Sports Illustrated? Uh, what was what was your kind of reaction? How did you process that? When I say that one more time, when you when you were first printed in in Sports Illustrated, how did you? Oh, the first. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was like it was one of the great days of my professional career, and um, and I said to myself that if I if I never got another piece in the magazine, I I will, would have felt a certain amount of professional success because. I do remember when I was 12 or 13 and like dreaming of working at this place. First of all, never expecting to work there, but dreaming of it. And just like the the idea that I could be printed in the same pages as like, uh, you know, like Frank Ford and people like that was just it, it like seemingly inconceivable. So when that catching up with was first printed and it was like 500 words or so, and I probably, uh, I mean, I interviewed this guy, Howie Young, for eight hours. Uh, which is absurd, uh, like in hindsight now. I can't believe the guy gave me the time. Especially for, for 500 five, words. Yeah, for a 500-word piece. But, I, I mean, I was very honest with him, and I told him this is my first piece. It means a lot to me. He was great. He was a really cool dude. Um, and so it was thrilling. I mean, I have it framed uh, somewhere in my uh, in my apartment somewhere now. I don't know where exactly it is. But I do have on my desk still at SI is I have a uh, photo of Howie Young from the cover and he signed it for me because uh, uh, I always wanted to remember like the feeling of what it was like to be published in that magazine for the first time. And he signed it, whatever he signed it, best wishes, happy to be part of your first Howie Young. Um, he died, so I, I, that means a lot to me. And again, nobody, Howie Young's not Gordie Howe and, or Wayne Gretzky. No one other than very old school hockey fans would know who this guy is. But he's really important in my journalism career because he, he, was, the, he was the guy who I... Uh, who I wrote about in my first piece. So it was like an incredible thrill. And it's still, there's still pressure to write for the magazine. That never goes away. Um, it's a little easier now, but you, you always still feel it. And I, I feel like you, part of that is, um, 
you know, you just feel like you want to live up to the ghosts and the people before you. So even though, again, it's easier for people to get into the magazine, and there are times when there are much younger writers in the magazine now, and, and certainly at times writers who are not, nowhere near as good as the people who used to write here, there's still pressure. And I hope there's still pressure for everybody because, you know, you do want to live up to the legacy that um, that came before you. But that Howie Young piece, uh, you know, it was a big it was big. It was big for me. And, uh, you know, I obviously since then I've had many, many more pieces in the magazine, but, um, but that meant a lot. I mean, I still remember the day that that issue came out. Michael Jordan was on the cover. Uh, he was with the Bullstar. I think it was 98. Um, and, uh, again, I just, I couldn't believe it. And I, you know, from the, I probably took like 50 copies from the office and sent them to my, uh, relatives and stuff. So that was a fun day. At what point did you find your niche at Sports Illustrated with the sports media stuff? Uh, I, I don't even know it would be so presumptuous to say it's my niche. I know I do it, and people who are interested in the in the beat know that I do it. But, um, you know, I would never be so presumptuous to somehow say, like, I'm the only person who could do it here. You know, I do women's basketball, too, and tennis, and I like those equally. But the um, I, I was very fortunate in that my – starting to work in this subject matter coincided with Sports Illustrated really getting into uh, digital and website. I mean, I think I was a little bit behind the curve in that other places got to the web before we did. But about whatever it was, 10, 10 11 years ago, um, I, um, I um, what was I going to say? 10 or 11 years ago, I, uh, um, I, I followed the media people who were in the magazine and I started morphing a little bit online. Like I wanted to take what we had done in SI the magazine. We'd always done a media column, and we had always done sort of like, here's what you should be watching this week. And um, and I asked the editors here, hey, do you think I can morph this to online and start writing media online in addition to whatever we're doing in the magazine? And they gave me a chance to do it. And so the timing was just really good in that SI.com was – sort of gaining more traction here in terms of we were doing more stuff. And they allowed me to go long, which was really, really huge. I could not do that in the magazine. I had to write 600, 500-word columns in the magazine. But online, I could go much longer, 1,500, 2,000. And then I credit Peter King with a lot of um, what I ended up doing is the success of Monday Morning Quarterback was so great that I told our editors here that I wanted to do sort of a junior version of that for the media. And I wanted to make, whether it was Monday or some other day, like kind of the destination day as like a sports media column where you get like all these different items and all these different things to to come here uh, on this day. And let me see if it'll get some pickup and attraction. And so I started doing it on Mondays, whatever year it was. Uh, people seemed to like it. And so it just sort of grew from there. Now I do two or three columns a week. But I have to give Peter King a lot of credit because his sort of Monday morning quarterback franchise helped all of us who do a similar kind of thing in our subjects. Um, uh, I, I think, uh, like, he, he he helped convince the bosses that this could be – it didn't have to just be football where you could do that kind of column. You could do it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Since since you started writing that column, uh, how, how – well, I mean, what was kind of the state of sports media when, when you first started writing it? Well, I mean, you know, the, I mean, a million different things. The consumption of mobile wasn't as great. You know, this is prior to, like, streaming. Netflix didn't exist when I started writing the column. Uh, just how we consumed news was different. Twitter and social media were uh, 
uh, had not been invented yet. Uh, uh, maybe Facebook and like a sort of a little bit, but not really. Um, so it's just how we consume information has just dramatically changed since when I was I probably started writing for the magazine like 2003, 2004 in terms of like media stuff. So, I mean, everything's changed. It's just sort of how we consume sports media in 2016 is just, it, it's not even in the same universe as 2004. 2004, I mean, ESPN probably had, you know, 12 million more uh, households and they were, it would seem inconceivable that they would have any kind of problems. I mean, they were the dominant player on the block. So, so much has changed since then. What hasn't changed, though, is that people, you know, still watch television. Still, sports television is still the dominant way people get their um, sports consumption. And that's still the same for 2016. Now, court cutting, court nevers, some of that stuff is obviously changing how people uh, consume information, sports information. But in general, that's still the same. So, you know, you could almost do a whole podcast on what is different about 2016 versus, let's say, you know, 2006. Um, because there's just so many sort of means of distribution that have, that have changed. But what hasn't changed is people are really interested in the sports media. They're interested in the people who you see on TV. They're interested in the writers who write stories. Uh, but everything around it's changed. I mean, you know, social media has changed just so much of just how we consume sports. And I would say that's probably the biggest one for me in terms of changes. I mean, I've I've kind of only grown up consuming a mass amount of sports media in the era of Twitter, um, just given my age. And I think I, it's been curious to me just like seeing how people think of sports media personalities and how a lot of them are likened to celebrities to a certain extent. Was that the case for in, in sports media, you know, maybe 15 years ago before uh, the Internet really became a big thing? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the we, you know, what really sort of changed a lot of the coverage of sports media, I think, was probably Deadspin, who um, who really, like, started covering ESPN the way you might cover a baseball team uh, in terms of, you know, sort of covering people as personalities, covering their peccadillos, uh, really putting the spotlight on them. The sports media people were probably even more famous in the 80s and the 90s just because um, it was centralized to smaller places and, you know, if you think of it just like how big Howard Cosell, let's say, was in his era, you know, I mean, 90 million people would know him. Like Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman at ESPN were monster, monster stars because the industry was sort of still smaller. Today, you know, sports media is just growing exponentially. So you have some people from Yahoo, Vertical, who are sort of well-known on social media, to like the Pac-12 network, who have their own sort of uh, notice in that region, to people who are SEC-focused. So the regionalization and the niche of sports media has blown up so much that um, that it's different, that it, it, it's... Uh, the barriers to being known in sports media are far smaller now than they were back then. Back then, to really be sort of famous in sports media, you essentially had to have a gigantic television platform. That's not the case today. Sure. Uh, something that I think is interesting, I've been thinking about a lot lately, is the idea of Twitter kind of uh, obscuring for, for writers the idea, the perception of what is being talked about a lot. Because I think when you're in the Twitter universe, it's easy to kind of get into it and feel as if, if a lot of people are talking about it, uh, on Twitter, it's easy to feel as if like everybody's talking about it when in actuality, Twitter represents a very small minority of people uh, in the real world that represents your audience. Uh, do you think that has affected how sports have been covered over the last, well, since the advent of Twitter, really? 
A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think people a lot of times are writing for what uh, or talking or saying for what they uh, perceive to be the audience on, on Twitter or social media. I'm sure we're all guilty of that. I think as long as you know, though, that exactly what you said, it is a sliver of the population. It is um, so often dictated by how or who you follow. So you essentially can basically just follow all like-minded people or all non-like-minded people. You have sort of control of your universe there. So I think it's an incredibly helpful tool and a valuable tool. I just think you have to realize and be rational about what it is. Like when you poll on Twitter, it is not of a reflective sample of anything, Sure. in fact. So I think if you, um, you know, everybody's sort of like, there's a Twitter echo chamber. Some of that is true, but you are also creating your own echo chamber. So as long as I think you understand and you're sort of cognizant of the fact that this is just a very small slice of a very small slice, I think you're okay. You still, you know, when I write sports media, I'm thinking about the man or the woman who are in, in Peoria or Oregon or San Francisco or Maine who don't have access to sports media decision makers and who don't have access to, let's say, an audience who can uh, reflect what they're watching. That, that's how I approach this stuff. I, I, like, I want to give them a voice. So um, I always hope to write for them. There's no doubt, though, that sometimes because if you're really into uh, the Twitter universe, and I'm certainly a heavy Twitter user, you know, you probably do get a little swayed by what's going on on Twitter. So you hopefully um, can step back a little bit and realize that it's not really reflective of your overall readership and, and the overall thought process in sports. It's really just sort of reflective on the people who are heavy users on Twitter. How have you seen? How have you seen how Twitter ch uh, has changed the way you consume journalism and, and produce journalism? Uh, it's it, 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 I think it just speeded up my metabolism. It's it, I've read so much more because of it, but it's also very hard to disconnect. It becomes a twenty four seven job, so that's really its biggest impact. Is it's just it, it really makes it become all consuming and often too often too much consuming. Uh, I think it uh, it reveals a lot about. Uh, the social media, uh, it, it's been revealing about sports media in uh, both very bad and good ways. I think you can tell who really is a thoughtful and uh, and um, sort of a, a thoughtful and poignant commentary versus people who are really sort of just out to make headlines and, uh, you know, intentional contrarians and people who are really just looking to, uh, I think, hoodwink the public. So Twitter is very revealing in all that because there's no editors out there and there's no filter. And so it's usually for the most part, just you. So in that sense, it's very revealing for a lot of sports media figures. So it sort of represents the best and worst of us, mm -hmm. I would say. But in terms of me, it, uh, it's just speeded up my news consuming metabolism to a different degree. Who have you learned the most about from Twitter? So, uh, in terms of sports? Sure. Uh, I, I think probably, I, I, I wouldn't say singular. I, there's not anybody singular. I think I've just learned a lot about um, on-air talent at ESPN, Fox, NBC, CBS, et cetera, because if they, um, you know, if they, if they, I, I think they, they oftentimes are unfiltered on Twitter, both to their detriment and to their uh, success. But to be honest with you, the, the people I learn the most with on Twitter are not in sports. I follow a lot of non I found a lot of journalists who cover news, especially global news, and that's who I really learn from. I, I find myself, that's the best part of Twitter for me, is just reading stories from people who are actually not in sports, who are brilliant reporters and who help educate me on the world. Mm -hmm. uh, given the given the social media landscape and, and the, the, the breadth of how much 
information and journalism out there. Who are some of the the young people in the in the industry today, uh, writing or on TV or or just kind of doing sports media that that stick out to you? Uh, I don't, you know, like I, I, I know I get asked that question a lot, but I don't really want to single anybody out because if I single somebody out, I'm going to forget somebody. But the the one thing I could say is it's very obvious who's doing good work if you're following them on Twitter, and they're they're out there reporting, they're making calls, they're finding stories that are unique and that people are have not sort of gone down that path, and those would be the young people I would focus on. If you're on Twitter or Facebook and you're just basically screaming and giving like the 15,000 take on why, you know, Cam Newton shouldn't have done this or LeBron did this, that's not very interesting to me and you're not differentiating yourself. So rather than sort of point to one person, I think there are hundreds and hundreds of young uh, people, young journalists out there uh, who are doing phenomenal work and usually the differentiator for them is that they're actually reporting and talking to people and not being opinionists and just offering yet another take. Mm-hmm. As as a as an adjunct professor at Columbia, what is kind of how has has that changed your uh, your perception or your perspective on how you consume or perceive sports journalism as as a teacher from that end? Well, what it's done is it just it provides me um, uh, with a weekly basis um, some idealism and romanticism about the business because my students are very. Um, they're really uh, hungry to learn, and they're hungry to uh, do great work, and they're really excited about journalism. And it sort of, you know, it, it takes a lot of your cynicism away because they are really, um, they, they're really ready to sort of do something great. Um, and so it hasn't changed, like, or shaped, like, how I consume news. Like, I'm not going to be consuming news just be- on Snapchat just because they are. But, um, but I think the best thing about teaching is just that you're – interacting with young people who are really excited about their possibilities. And that's very good for people who have been in the business for a number of years because one of the things you have to always guard against is cynicism. And so that's probably the best thing, like, for me about Columbia is is the idealism of the students as well as just, you know, being getting the opportunity to pass down something that you learned to somebody else. That's a very cool thing. Do you think there is too much cynicism in sports journalism? Yeah, yeah, but I think it's probably I think it's probably warranted. I think it's a very cynic. I think it's a cynical world a lot of times. From, um, from I mean, listen, the the idea of the St. Louis Rams leaving their city to Los Angeles is an absolute cynical play. You know, if you're a sports fan, what are you to think? You were told for many years that you know they're a part of your community and that this team loves you and you're making a commitment to buying their product, and then they essentially go off because there's a gold rush for them in Los Angeles and there's cynicism every day in sports. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I think you got to try to fight that. I mean, there's still great moments and the athletic achievements are still incredible, but there's a lot of cynicism out there. I mean, performance enhancing drugs is a cynical thing. If you, if you sort of think about it on its base level, it's basically people cheating the, the system and the system is supposed to be, you know, some kind of fair play. So it's hard. It's hard a lot of times not to be, a cynic. It's certainly hard a lot of times not to be a cynic covering sports media because there's a lot of cynical things that happen. Mm-hmm. As someone who covers sports media, how how have you seen uh, people differentiate themselves in terms of success? Is there um, maybe one one thing or a couple things that that separate the really successful from from the rest of the pack? Well, it depends on how you view success. So that, I mean, that would be my first answer. Sure. If you view yeah. success purely purely on money and 
theme, well, someone like Skip Bayless is really successful. Um, I don't consider him successful because I think um, uh, I would want to judge success on quality editorial and uh, respect of your peers. But others would say somebody like that is incredibly successful because he's, you know, he's making multiple millions of dollars and um, and is on a gigantic network. But to me, you know, I judge success on people who every day don't cheat readers or don't cheat viewers. They go and they work at their job and they're really, they're craftspeople and they really approach the craft with an artist's elegance and honor. So to me, those are the successful people in the business and there are thousands out there. There are just, you read a story and you're like, man, that, that reporter went out there and really delivered the goods. Or you watch a piece on television you're like that was really well done like they you know this wasn't stupid this wasn't screaming this was just like a thoughtful take um so to me that's how i judge success um but it's very subjective and others would judge it differently who have been the most interesting people for you to cover in sports media um yeah that's a good question actually i think people who are interesting to me are just people who are um forging new things that I haven't seen before. I mean, I think Bill Simmons was pretty interesting for that. Uh, at Fox, Katie Nolan does something that's very different. Um, and there are things about both I don't particularly always love, but I, they're interesting to me because they're doing things that um, or, or forging paths no one else is doing. But I, I find a lot of people interesting. I just I find quality work interesting. Like, that that's cool to me. So, like, when I read, like, a guy like Bruce Arthur or the Toronto Star, who, generally speaking, never writes a bad sports column, like, that's really interesting to me. Like, that's someone who really takes his craft seriously and um, and just works at it. Uh, Ramona Shelburne of ESPN is another example. She interned here a long time ago, and to see her continue to do really good work and get better and better every year is interesting to me. So, I, I find a lot of people, I mean, I find really thousands of people in sports media interesting. It's probably the reason I do this, is because, um, um, I'm really interested in the craft and how people do their craft and why people do their craft. Mm -hmm. uh, what what um, was the question I wanted to ask? I, I think uh, for me, like I I kind of see myself as an idealist in terms of sports journalism. In that, like uh, I want to, you know, for me, my biggest goal is at the end of the day is, is trying to be a, a long form feature writer and writing these very uh, journalistically, you know, heavy kind of things and uh, have fun profiles and that kind of stuff. And and I want I don't want to live in a world where like that kind of stuff can succeed and stuff that. Uh, the stuff of the, the kind of stuff that Granlin did can succeed in a in a in a financially viable way, um, and maybe I'm naive to a certain degree as a young person uh, wanting to go in, into this industry and not thinking about uh, necessarily just about clicks and and uh, grabbing headlines and stuff. Do you think there's been uh, since since kind of Twitter and and uh, the internet has blown up, kind of a de-emphasis on quality reporting and quality writing at all? No, I think the opposite. I think there's been an increase on it. Um, I don't buy the people who say uh, there's not quality reporting writing. It used to be better in the old days. I think that's nonsense. There's more information and more good information out there than ever before because the barriers to entry are lower. Uh, Grantland failing sucked because it was a very high-profile place that did great work, that supported great work, and was dropped by the, by, the, by the place that really has the most resources to make it work. But no, if this is the kind of piece... It, things you want to do, you will be able to do it every single day, especially online, whether it's SB Nation or Vice or SI or ESPN, there's great long form. Happens every single day in this country. And I probably have a million places I haven't mentioned, Bleacher Report, etc. So if that's what you want to do, you will be able to do that in this 
profession. It, sometimes it might not be easy. Sometimes it might not be lucrative. But you will be able to write those kind of pieces. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've talked to this week. Uh, I talked to to Shay Serrano and Jonah Carey about kind of the uh, on the podcast about about Grandland and and how it. Uh, you know the culture over there, and and the end uh, of the website, and uh, working for Bill, and it's it's like I, I this is a perception that I think a lot of people have gone from just Twitter and and people talking about Grandland, but everybody just seems to be so loyal to Bill Simmons. And as a Boston person myself, like I I grew up reading Simmons, you know, in the magazine and and seeing him on TV and listening to the podcast. What do you think it is about him that makes him this person that? his his employees just gravitate towards and, and feel completely loyal towards? Well, I mean, think about it. He gave a lot of people their careers. He gave them jobs. He gave them high-paying jobs. And he um, he also, in the end, gave them avenues to get other jobs when Grantland folded. So I, they should be loyal to the guy. I mean, he took a lot of people, who especially who are under 30, and he gave them a mega platform. And they became in their own um, – and he gave them the freedom to find their voice and to write – so that's a pretty amazing thing that does not happen. Uh, it really is not really duplicated for the most part. So I would hope that all the people who got so much exposure from Grantland and made great money for a couple of years would always be loyal to Simmons because he not only helped them at Grantland, but he helped them get other jobs after Grantland because he gave them that exposure. So that's where I think the loyalty comes from. The loyalty comes from the fact that he really helped a lot of people's careers. Mm-hmm. I think I think sports media is, change, is obviously changing a lot because of, of the Internet and how – People my age aren't are, are kind of going away from television, and obviously ESPN and the subscription numbers have been uh, in the news a lot lately. How do you see the, how do you see kind of how people consume sports journalism changing over the next maybe five years? Um, you know, again, sort of a million dollar question, but again, I think sport. I think it will still certainly be consumed digitally, depending on what screen you have between mobile or your iPad, etc. Uh, television is not going away, and you will still consume sports journalism on television at ESPN and, and at other places. I, I do think um, there's going to be places like Medium and you know Cauldron or whatever else, newer forms that, that come, and you'll be consuming stuff there. But I think five years from now, I think a lot of the dominant players remain. Uh, I think ESPN.com will still be a major player, and Bleacher Report will be a major player. I don't think things are going to dramatically change in the next five years. My only hope is that the there's still there's not a reduction at all of journalism and an increase in terms of kind of opinion and take. That would be the one thing to sort of just watch for and hopefully um, because opinion and take can definitely draw clicks and you need smart editors and good business people to not go over the top one way. So that would just be the thing to watch for. But in terms of like where you're going to get this stuff, I still think the players, New York Times, Sports Illustrated, Washington Post, etc., they'll all still be providing great journalism. I'm a junior in college, hoping to go into sports journalism after I graduate. Um, as both someone who covers sports media and as someone who is a professor who teaches journalism, uh, for there's a ton of people like me out there uh, just you know wanting to go into sports journalism after graduating. Uh, for someone like me, what is what is some of the advice that you would give? I think you you know the, the the what they don't really teach you in journalism school and in colleges is just how important networking is and you have to really get started on that very young. So whether you cold email somebody or cold call somebody or you really my advice my best advice would be to sort of get a pad or to go on, to get your laptop and to start making a, almost like an excel sheet of all your potential networks and then um find those people who know what you want to know 
get in touch with them and start building up your network base because the way you're going to get jobs is generally speaking through word of mouth. You need to be on someone's mind when a job opening comes. So I would really, whether it's cold calling people, cold emailing people, whatever you want to end up doing in sports journalism, you, you need to work on getting to know the people who are doing what you want to do. So that would be my first big piece of advice. My second piece of advice, just on a more immediate thing, would be check all your social media feeds, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, et cetera, and clean them up because uh, when you are interviewed for jobs, the people who are interviewing you are going are gonna to search all these feeds. And if you come off professional, you're going you're gonna to have an advantage over uh, your competitors who, if there are photos of them, you know, drunk or doing crazy stuff. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. You're in college. It's it's what you do. But you got to keep in mind that somebody's going to bring you to an organization, and you don't want to give them any stupid reason not to not to hire you. So my other thing would be to just sort of clean up your social media feeds a little bit and make them as professional as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard, uh, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You got it, man. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. See ya. So that's the show for this week. Thanks again to Richard Deitch for coming on the show, and I hope you guys did enjoy our conversation. Next week on the show, we have Will Leach, the founder of Deadspin, and currently the sports uh, sports columnist for Sports on Earth, uh, also a movie reviewer for The New Republic, and also a reporter on politics for Bloomberg. Uh, we had a really extended conversation about just kind of the internet and its rise in sports journalism. And I think you guys were, are really going to enjoy it. It's a, it's a longer episode. So, and, and Will and I really touched on a lot of things. So I think you guys will enjoy that as well. Um, make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you haven't already, uh, make sure to leave us a rating. If you guys do enjoy the show or if you don't uh, just <laughs> leave us a, leave us some feedback with whatever you think. And, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, you can follow us uh, on the sh- on Twitter at BartoloPod. You can also uh, email the show at doingitforbartolo at gmail.com. Uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter at I am June Lee. Uh, tweet at me any guests you, you guys want to have on the show. Uh, we'll, we'll try our best to, to have them on as well. Uh, so uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, stay tuned for next week with Will Leach. And until next time, guys, have a good one.